to this week's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. As you may know, if you've been listening in, we have a primary election coming up in August. And so regular contributor Emily Kornheiser and I are trying to talk to as many candidates as we can between now and August. And today we're talking with former representative from Woodstock, Charlie Kimball, who is running for lieutenant governor. Welcome, Charlie. Thank you. And current representative. Yes. Current rep. Now, (laughs) wait a minute. I'm a little confused because I thought you had to step down from one position to run for another. No, you can even run for five at a time. Yeah, it's an odd quirk in Vermont that you can run for multiple offices, but I'm not seeking off re-election in my current position as representative. But until January, until the new representative is sworn in, then I am representative. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you for that clarification. For some reason, I thought you had to leave one position before you could you could ca- uh, campaign. No, and fun election fact, I think Chris Winters is still serving as Deputy Secretary of State while he campaigns as sec- for Secretary of State. Oh, okay. Ooh. Hmm. Yeah. That's an interesting um, one. Mm-hmm. Okay. And just want to let listeners know before we dive into the conversation that early voting starts on Friday. Wow. Vermont has a very large and beautiful early election window. And so anytime between Friday and August 9th, folks can either sign up to get an absentee ballot on the Secretary of State's website. They can call their town clerk. They can go to their town clerk, fill out a ballot turn it in anytime between now and August 9th. And then on August 9th, you can go vote in the regular real life with the machine. The state has been sending out postcards. So you may have actually seen that come in your your mailbox. Charlie, let's start with just the broad question I'm asking all candidates who come on the show. You know, there are so many ways to serve your community. Mm -hmm. There's volunteering, there's, you know, being on the select board, there's being on a school board working at the library, you know, so many different ways. Why is running for either rep or, you know, serving as rep and then now running for lieutenant governor, why have you chosen this path as your path for public service? Yeah, it's a fair question. I mean, I've been involved with community service for a long time, starting as a volunteer, even in sixth grade, is helping uh, coach the other kids in skiing teaching kids how to ski on a, a home hill of Hardack on a rope toe in St. Albans. But since then, I've been involved with the community, serving on boards, serving on the uh, board of trustees of the St. Albans Public Library, village trustees in Woodstock when we moved here, um, several different rotary clubs, service organizations, the treasurer of countless organizations, Pentangle Council on the Arts, Good Neighbor Health Clinic. I'm not the treasurer there, but on that board, King Street Youth Center. So I've served in a variety of ways already. And then when I ran for the legislature six years ago, that was, it was an opening, it was an opportunity to really represent my community and do more work for the community in the state legislature. And I have to say that's been really rewarding in the sense of being able to help constituents navigate state government. And sometimes it can be very confusing for, for citizens to figure out who do I contact about this or can you help me do that? And that's been very rewarding. I've enjoyed that part of the work. 
And, and the reason why I'm running for lieutenant governor is it's an extension of what I've been doing in the legislature. And that is to really focus on economic development, but also workforce development. And that's, for me, that's been the key is on looking to how to, how to make it available so everyone who's willing to apply themselves and maybe gain new skills can find a meaningful career in Vermont. And that's something that really falls between different agencies. It falls between different committees in the legislature. There's not really a great coordination among them, even though there are efforts to try. We have some excellent programs in Vermont. We have some excellent agencies. But what often happens is that people fall through the cracks in terms of kids coming out of high school, people that come back from college without a degree uh, with debt, and they're trying to figure out what do I do now, or people trying to reorient themselves as to where they want to go. And that is about workforce development and training. And that's where my focus has been in the legislature, just completed another major bill on that this year. And then looking at anytime I talk to anybody about workforce, it all comes back to housing. You know, where are they going to live? I can't afford to live here. Uh, employers are talking about, I would love to hire more workers, but they can't find any place to live. And we know that the affordability crisis is very much alive and well in Vermont in terms of housing and childcare, the everyday cost of life. So those are the things that have compelled me to try to do that work on a state level. And while it's in the house where I've served for six years, you get to focus on one particular policy area and you get to know that area really well. And the issue of workforce development is across a lot of committees, whether it's education, healthcare, workforce development and economic development and general military affairs. So it's all these different committees. And I look at this as an opportunity to really be able to focus on that and try to make an improvement there. So that's, that's why I'm running. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Charlie. We had talked about when when we were scheduling this show about different policies. And one area you have focused on is rural ec- economies. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people would agree that our rural economies are important in Vermont and we we need to support them and revitalize them in many cases, but not everyone would I think agree on how that should be done or yeah. what that would look like. So for you, what are some of the steps that, that need to be taken to support our rural economies? You think about it. Uh, and when we got the new census, there was great anticipation that we would find that all of Vermont had a decline in population, which was actually not true. Uh, so we had a 2.8% or overall, uh, 2.8% increase in our overall population. And, but we did have three counties in Vermont have a decline in population uh, from 2010 to 2020. And we've had a lot of towns uh, within those more rural areas have a decline in population. And that's one measure as to whether or not those communities are vital or vibrant. So if you think about community and economic vitality in rural towns, that's something that a group of us in the legislature, we call ourselves the Rural Economic Development Working Group or Red Wing, Uh, it's easier to say rural caucus. So we've been focusing on what is it that we can do to help grow and sustain the economies in rural Vermont. And part of it is looking at those industries that are operating in rural Vermont, things such as the forest products industry, things such as diversified agriculture, outdoor recreation that you can find uh, and thrive in, in rural Vermont. But then we also talk about poverty. 
And the further you get from a population center, the greater poverty you encounter. And that is because there aren't the same kind of job opportunities, but there are also aren't necessarily the skill sets among the uh, folks that are working or living in rural Vermont. So I think it's a few things. One is to make sure that the people in rural parts of the state have access to kind of skill training and education that they need in order to qualify for a better paying job. The second is we come back to the issue of broadband and it's, it's, it's an easy answer to a question that's very difficult to solve saying, well, let's just connect everybody. And we've allocated a lot of money in the legislature to be able to bring fiber to the home or the business. And I think in three to four years, we're going to see incredible connectivity uh, because of the work that we've done. There's a lot of being, a lot being done in the communication union districts. So those are some of the things. But we also have to think about the vitality of that general store. And in more, a lot of communities, they struggle to stay open because we've had a systemic change in how people buy and how people communicate and how they socialize, how they get educated, uh, how they get their medicine. So all those things have really changed the fabric of our community and especially in rural Vermont. So um, even our school system, and I'm sure Representative Kornheiser can talk to that, is studying the details of how we fund our schools and what schools are still open. So before, are- before we jump into schools, I want to sort of go deeper on one thing you said. So when you first started talking, I wanted to interrupt and say like, okay, can we even define rural here? So, yeah. you know, by any measure outside of the state of Vermont, pretty much anything except for downtown Burlington is considered rural, right? And then, or and sort of other definitions of say the suburbs, um, in most universes, Brattleboro is considered, even downtown Brattleboro is considered rural. However, downtown Bellows Falls is not because it is denser than Brattleboro. It's very strange. But I think what that sort of, there's the lived experience of when they have rural. And then there's what sort of population density means. And then there's this idea that sort of rural is a place with less opportunity Mm. which would definitely encompass pretty much everything outside of Chittenden County. And then as we sort of go from there, you know, you laid out this economic argument that people are sort of the way for people to access better wage jobs is to get more training. We can talk about that more later. Certainly disagree with you on that, but you know that already. Yes. I think, but what I'm curious about to dive into is we started this conversation with the question of vitality mm-hmm. and vitality isn't just about the economy. It's about how people gather and communicate and all of those things, right? It's about how we come together, how we govern, how we play, how we meet our neighbors, how we do all of those things. And I think in that case, by any national measure, our rural communities are more vital than most other places in the whole country. Mm -hmm. But we're, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of sort of slippage there, you know? And I know that you've done this diner tour, which is adorable. And I just saw in Vermont Digger that one of the diners in your neck of the woods is actually closing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I remember when I first moved to Vermont 20 something years ago, I'm really just going on this, on this path. Um, <laughs> when I moved to Vermont more than 20 years ago, I, you know, the phenomenon of the older men sort of gathering at the gas station for coffee or gathering at the coffee shop for coffee, but often it was sort of a gas station, coffee shop, general store thing. The coffee clutches in the morning. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It was totally fascinating to me. Not something that like I, you know, saw growing up 
and also sort of this delightful intergenerational opportunity as these older men are sort of watching over everyone. But, you know, it's not just that we don't have places to gather and have, it's we don't have people who want to do that kind of gathering anymore. Even I don't need, like, I, hmm. I don't think the business model of the general store is one thing. And I think that's quite solvable. And I think a lot of communities are solving that. And I think that would be interesting to talk about, but there's sort of the other piece of it, which is, do people actually want to do that kind of gathering? Do people want to do a different kind of gathering? Are we creating governance and like social opportunities for Vermonters that might want things to be different? Or is it just that everyone's commuting so far they don't have time to go have coffee before they head off to work because their workplace is two hours away? I don't know. So that's, Mm -hmm. when I think about vitality, I think about that. I think about like communities that are full during the day, not just at night. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot you just laid out there. Um, yeah, because even trying to define what's rural and what's not, and there are def- different definitions by different people. The Office of Management and Budget, I think, t- says that it's any community that is uh, was 2,500 or, or less is rural, whereas the U.S. Census Bureau has a different definition. I might have it mixed up. but And then the real definition that you find in any kind of dictionary says, well, more countryside. Like, all right. So then you get into population density with ac- academic research and what can defines rural and what does not. In Vermont, we only have one metropolitan statistical area. That's Burlington and, and Franklin County up into St. Albans. And the rest of it is defined differently. So it's, it's really fascinating to consider what is rural and not. I mean, the Northern Borders Regional Commission looks at all of Vermont as being considered eligible for their grants. So in that sense, for all of Vermont is, is rural, if you really take it uh, to heart that way. But, you know, I was at one of those cl- coffee clashes in Lincoln, and it is a bunch of, you know, town fathers that meet in the mornings and for coffee. And now with COVID, they bring their lawn chairs and they sit, uh, sit in the town parking area across from the general store. And they sit and they talk about the problems and it was great to be among them and to really talk about issues that were important to them. And so I brought up things such as, you know, what about gun safety? What about community? What, and it's great to get their perspectives. And same thing happens at the Tigo store in Pomfret and in the fire station in South Woodstock. Although yesterday it was too cold for them to hang out. So they went inside and found coffee. So it, it does exist, but it's, you're talking about a systemic issue and really captured in the book Bowling Alone by Putnam, talking oh, about nice uh, all out there. I read that yeah. book a long time ago. Yeah, and, and you know I've seen increasing references to it. I just picked up the book. I thought this would be a nice, easy read. Not quite so. Talking about social capital in the you know, four hundred and some odd pages of the book. It's but, a really good book. Everyone should read it. It came yeah. out thirty years ago, maybe 20, 20, twenty years ago. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a good one. I was talking about the changes in the social fabric and social capital and what that means and trying to identify the reasons behind why people are joining things less. And how do we measure that community health is I think where you're going in that sense. And when we started the Economic Development Commission in Woodstock, we were trying to figure out, all right, well, how are we we going to measure if we're effective or not? Woodstock is 3,000 people. We're really rural in that sense. We have a concentrated village, but we're pretty rural. It's not like other rural communities in the sense that we have a very well-defined downtown. We've got some uh, history. We've got some beautiful buildings, and there's a lot of second-home communities uh, that are helping it out. But, but so what do you measure? So for us, we were looking at, well, let's look at the number of full-time residents as a measurement 
of vitality. And it's really hard to do consistently. So what about we look at the number of registered voters and active participation? Let's look at the number of kids enrolled in our elementary school uh, as being a measurement of vitality. Number of visitors. We look at the amount of gross receipts from our retail and commercial sectors to try to see, is there commerce going on? New business startups. Some things that we thought about is, you know, what, they're hard, difficult to measure. What percent of somebody's income are they spending on housing? You know, in terms of what is the percentage of people living in poverty? So there's so many different measures. You can't use them all necessarily, but those are all indicators of is a community vital or not? I'm on my bike quite a bit and riding along the dirt roads and you come across an abandoned house and you try to think, what happened here? What's the story? And I was in, I think it was Newfane or it was Wilmington. It was on a back road and looked like a great house. And I've talked to Maura Collins at uh, Vermont Housing Finance Agency about this. Like, what about all these abandoned houses? She said, well, some of them really need to be torn down because it had been abandoned so long, you just can't do anything with them. But others, they can be rehabbed. And that's uh, a part of the solution for our housing crisis. But the quite, you know, there are cases of whole communities which just become abandoned. How do you stop that? And that's what I'm most interested in. I'm nervous about the number of empty storefronts in small communities. I was in Bennington yesterday. And Bennington has done a great job with the Putnam Block. And there's some real good energy there. And there are some good things happening there. But there's still a lot of empty storefronts. So how do you fill those? And how do you make it so that your community is involved and engaged? Mm -hmm. So um, I I look at that as some of the things uh, that are going on. And and one last thing, just thinking about dairy farms. We've had a 60% decline in, in the number of dairy farms, yet the number of cows or the amount of milk being produced is level or increasing. So that means that there's just fewer operations, but they're bigger ones. And so what, what are all those farms doing that where there used to be cows on the side of the hill or they used to be productive? And so you have to look at that diversity in agriculture and making sure that there is working lands mm-hmm. uh, as another way to make sure that those rural communities are keeping the character of Vermont, but people are actually earning a living in working in the land. And that's really vital, uh, I think, to the success. And that for me is, I think, the piece that we often leave out of our policy. It's that we are either trying to save something that once was or trying to sort of create something from somewhere else. But the idea that that farm might be able to pivot into the future with something different, right? And we see that some places really, really well, but we haven't figured out how to sort of support it happening in the same way. Or someone doesn't want to join the Lions Club or the Rotary or, you know, Charlie, you will soon be a man of a certain age. And I imagine you're not actually going to sit at the outside the gas station for a few hours every morning. And so what, like, what are the new places to gather? What is the new face of downtown that's not another tchotchke shop or hardware store if that's not what people are purchasing. And so how do we really like understand and invest in the communities that people really want to live in in a thriving way when very few of us can even imagine what that might be? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think you raise an interesting point, Emily, because I often find it a curiosity question for me when I hear us talk about policy, but also sort of some of our, our data gathering practices 
And I sometimes feel like we go top down rather than bottom up. For example, when I hear conversations around workforce a lot, I hear a lot of folks talk about like, well, you know, this business needs these type of skilled workers and this business needs these type of skilled workers. But I have yet, and maybe it's there and I haven't seen it, but I have yet to see a study that says, okay, let's look at X community, what skills already exist Hmm. and what do we bring to match those skills rather than assuming that everyone needs to change their skills to, to meet a specific business. I'm not saying one approach is better than the other. I just, it's, it seems to me like the bottom up or the grassroots up approach is sometimes missing. One thing that I've seen actually really interestingly in Brattleboro recently is that the community's really still been struggling with SIT shutting down its on-campus programs five years ago. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And there are a lot of folks who sort of worked in the nexus of the School for International Training. And so many of them have now stepped into different support roles with our new American Afghan community. But very few of those are paid jobs. But as sort of, as that develops, as people sort of find their way, as some of the organizations that are supporting these folks become more formalized, there are sort of job opportunities there that really match the skill set that a lot of folks in our area have. Mm -hmm. And there are more ways we could do that in a more conscious way than we often do. Good point. Yeah, and over to your point about bottom-up, I mean, it's uh, one of the programs that we launched last year in the legislature is called the Better Places Program. And the idea is really to have communities lead that process of really invigorating public spaces and using some crowdfunding and using some state dollars and guidance to help transform public spaces. That's happened in Brattleboro in some places. And that can happen in a lot of communities, but it's not to be top down, but to be really from the community. And I think about some of the rural areas and the the diner that's closing in in Quichi is a tough location. It hasn't been successful for any operator there. Yeah. And it's, yes, that's also a thing. (laughs) Yeah. But then the question uh, I think becomes, can a good operator or can a, a, an, uh, someone with passion run a business that overcomes some of those obstacles? And the answer is yes. You know, the kind of the build it and they will come. Years ago, when I lived in St. Albans, my parents loved this particular restaurant in Montgomery and it's called Zach's on the Rocks. Uh, Zach was a, a phenomenal entertainer, chef, and had this thriving business in the, really the middle of nowhere but it brought people there and it was incredible. So and you think about Hill Farmstead up in Greensboro as being this beer capital of the world uh, because of the people that are so passionate about what they're doing in rural Vermont. So there's, I think there's great examples of where someone with an idea that receives either the support of the community or they're just able to harness that energy on their own, they can make a significant difference. So there's, we can't underestimate the ability of individuals to transform uh, their own lives, but also the communities. So to your point, how can we support them? How can we support those transformational moments, those ideas in rural areas of the state? And I think we can to just capture people's imagination. We have just a couple minutes before the end of this section, before we have to go to break. 
Thanks. I just wanted to add that, you know, I, I think, yes, we can capture people's imagination. I think we can also make the enabling environment for folks to sort of bring their ideas to fruition a lot clearer, you know, a positive, strong regulatory framework makes a huge difference in terms of what, you know, I think one thing that we see all the time in Vermont, we've talked about this before, Charlie, is that someone has an idea, they are an inventor, or they're very good at a particular thing. That doesn't mean that they're particularly good at business or particularly good at HR or particularly good at navigating environmental regs. And they don't necessarily need to be if they could find that information and that handholding somewhere in their community. And very often they can't. And I think that would be a fun thing to talk about after the break. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Thank you. So the Montpelier Happy Hour will return on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. If you're just joining us, I am your host, Olga Peters, and I'm speaking with regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, as well as Lieutenant Governor candidate Charlie Kimball. So glad you can both be here. Um, we have been talking about rural vitality and what it, you know, in the first half of the show, we, we discussed um, even like what, how do we define vitality? How do we define rural? And, you know, Emily, some of what you said made me really um, think that, yeah, in some ways growing up in these small communities, like I did. So I spent most of my childhood in um, the big population of Wilmington which was huge compared to Whitingham. And then right over the line, um, I also have uh, deep roots in in Heath, Massachusetts, um, where my maternal grandparents had a farm and my paternal uh, Meme and Pepe had a general store. And so I, as a child, figured I would grow up to either be a farmer or own a general store. Part of me still wants to own a general store. <laughs> I loved my, my, I loved Peter's general store. Anyway, um, and, and to me, it's so much what we're talking about. It's like something you feel, um, which does not help the conversation at all when, when we need to talk about policy, um, but but yeah, this sense of community, I think, is what I have taken away from my years in these smaller towns. Um, and I'm going to turn it over to Emily because the, the recycling truck's picking up. <laughs> um, and that's, you know, we could talk about waste disposal in small towns. I think that's actually an interesting question. But before we do that, I just want to say that the views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests and not their employers, nor the radio station, nor TV station, that those views and opinions might be broadcast through. So um, going back into the conversation about rural vitality and um, 
Right before the break, I brought up an idea that I don't remember anymore, but perhaps you remember it, Charlie, as sort of a conversation to continue into this one. Do you, by any chance, remember what it was that I was talking about? No, I was so riveted on the next subject matter of coming up with a new cocktail using rural ingredients. Uh, I do not properly recall the specific question where you were going. Okay. Oh, um, oh dear. We, we, we didn't have to get drunk to like forget our, yeah, our train of thought. <laughs> oh, no. I, oh, you know what it was? I remember now it was, so it's actually related to the garbage disposal. It's related to sort of like, what does it take in, you know, a state with very few people um, and some degree of sort of centralized population and um, government to really like meet people's government needs. So we were talking about sort of how to help small entrepreneurs or employees navigate getting their sort of legal and process needs met, right? Like how do people learn how to get through environmental regs and be good human resources custodians or be, you know, employees who know their rights? And how do we do that in a way that people can like, access real people or how do farmers get technical assistance down here in Southern Vermont, right? Um, where people can like talk to real people so that they feel like they're having real conversations and really know things given that there aren't that many of us. And so it's sort of hard to like have a person for every person all throughout the state when there aren't that many of us in any part of the state. And so that's like, Solving that problem feels really important to me. The more I talk to constituents who sort of are trying to pivot their businesses or trying to find a new career path, um, I find myself often saying like, yeah, I know this one person who does this here and you should talk to them, but really I know like 40 people and a whole agency in Burlington or Northampton that you should go talk to. And that's hard to sort of like send people out of community to solve their problems. Mm. I, I think there's a couple of things. Well, one, just in terms of uh, leveraging the systems and the technology that we already have. Um, and we can do a better job as a state. And we're certainly trying to move that way with establishing a single business portable portal uh, for business owners or interested entrepreneurs to find the answers to the questions that they have uh, so they can access it online. Um, it doesn't do everything, obviously, because you still need to get to a person when you're frustrated, you can't find what you want on that internet site. And we've all been there. Um, it's like, I just have this one question. Can you answer it for me? So um, part of it is the information that we can make available to people searching for it. And uh, I think we're moving in that direction pretty well with that single business portal. We worked on that in the legislature to try to make that easier. Um, the second piece in terms of like training available for technical assistance for farmers and for businesses, uh, part of the new plan for the farm to plate um, next decade that was published last year was to really increase the number of people available to provide technical assistance for those folks in smaller agricultural enterprises. Um, so that's definitely a plan. Uh, UVM does a pretty good job uh, with extending its extension service. Uh, and also there's the... Um, farm and forest viability uh, work that's been done through VHCB and also uh, assisted by UVM. So there, there is that question. UVM would like to be that single door to, to call through its Office of Engagement. 
This um, is Carly, I know about all those different offices, but I could, because of being on the commerce committee, but I can barely even keep them straight in my own hand. I yeah. can't fat, like handing that to someone as like a, here's the suite of options for you. We, is, we almost need like a two one one, but for entrepreneurs. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well, and then locally, I mean, it's re really the regional development corporations that should be providing that. And I think BDCC does a great job of connecting people to the resources they need. But even to get somebody uh, that is in uh, as an entrepreneur, who do you call? Do you call BDCC? And they can point you to everybody. Uh, so I would hope that the Brattleboro Development Credit Corporation has enough of a uh, of a name recognition and an, and an establishment so that people would easily go to them. Mm -hmm. um, so, but you're right. There's so many different people that are involved in kind of the alphabet soup uh, of organizations um, throughout the state. It can be confusing. So I'm not quite sure how to answer that because like in workforce development, we're talking about all these different, uh, different entities without really one clearinghouse uh, to make sure that you know where to go. Um, and so it can be confusing. And I just say that there's, there is an interest and a desire to be more connected. Just have to work on that on a statewide level uh, to make sure that we make that happen. I think as, as someone who lives and works in Vermont, um, I don't really consider myself a true entre entrepreneur, but one thing I've always found interesting is, you know, I usually have what I call my day job, which usually comes with very standard things like a W-2 and navigating my financial and regulatory life with a W-2 and that type of employment feels very easy in Vermont. Yeah. Where it gets tricky is when I, and I am sure I am not the only one, loops in my freelance work because mm -hmm. I do do freelance journalism and, um, uh, some marketing for, for some local organizations. And it's when that 10, 1099 comes in or all those other different ways that I, I build my, my work and my financial life that things start getting really fuzzy. And you don't do that just to like get your emotional needs met in your career. You do that so you can pay your rent. Right. Cause your yeah. day job. Yeah, you know that that old joke. What do you what do you call a Vermonter with only three jobs? Part time. Lazy. Lazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. it, you know, being self employed is not easy. Um, and anybody that says, "Oh, I'm just going to start a business," well, there's a lot to it. Um, and some people don't have the aptitude. They might, as Emily was saying before, some people have a particular skill, but not the business aptitude. Um, and that becomes difficult. I represented artists as part of my work um, uh, experience. And the artists, some of them were incredible business people and some were horrible. Uh, and the ones who were willing to just focus on the art and then leave the business to somebody else that they trusted had a particular formula work. And other artists like Warren Kimball, for instance, no relation, and Brandon Vermont, incredibly successful, but he had a real head for business uh, and promotion as well as his artwork, uh, as did his, uh, his wife. So that, it made that successful. So not, it is difficult to be self-employed. Um, and there are folks that are 
to your point, who do I call? Um, and it's with, even within state government and outside of state government, it's who's willing to help. I found that the, in most cases, state government is very willing to help when you have a question on the call. Not always, uh, but most of the time. And, the, and can you find that help locally? I think you can. Um, and part of being self-employed is trying to find those resources. Someone opens a store uh, and builds inventory. How do you buy? How do you buy inventory? That is hard, right? I mean, the general stores, particularly, uh, you're dealing with 100 different vendors. Uh, so how do you manage all those? Some people are really good at it uh, and um, they can do it like it's just natural to them and others have a more difficult time. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I don't know the right answer to that, but it's, it's part, that's part of the uh, success of being, or part of being a successful business owner mm -hmm. is being able to have the, <coughs> either the, the, not the natural ability, but the willingness to get the skills that you need in order to do that. I, I agree with you, Charlie. I will just put a finer point on, on my comment though, is I sometimes feel as someone who's trying to combine different revenue streams, that some of the regulations that cover those different regular uh, revenue streams are not working together. Okay. So for example, um, I am very grateful. I now have a day job that provides health insurance. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. Day job. Um, uh, but before that I was going through the marketplace and when you're a freelancer, your income does this throughout right. the year. And yep. even with a day job, my income did that. And there's this expectation that every month I would call the marketplace and say, oh, my income's changed. So change what I'm paying on my premium. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't think the state has time for that. I certainly, you know, my, my head just kind of imploded. Um, so that's what I mean by there's some regulations that just I, I don't think support um, like what I would call non-traditional W-2 jobs. One of the yeah. things that I think is really interesting about how we solve those problems sometimes is that on, um, for an employer or for um, a business at um, most of the systems are designed around annual income and your total annual income, you know, and maybe measured in different ways. Like, is it AGI? Is it what, you know, is it after withholdings? Whatever it is. Um, but that's sort of on the annual basis. And then, but for most sort of reasons you would talk about your income on the personal level, usually related to accessing some sort of state benefit um, or even filling out financial information, say for, you know, school lunches or your kids, you know, your kid school figuring out their tax, re their tax liability, all of that happens on the month by month basis, or even sometimes on the two week basis. And it's mm -hmm. still built on this sort of assumption that every family has a single paycheck, which has probably never been true in Vermont, but isn't even true in most of America at this point. And it's really somehow at a higher income level, sort of the annual is trusted, um, but at a lower income level, there's sort of the need for the two weeks or the month. And it's really, it's hard for unemployment insurance. It's hard for accessing healthcare. It's hard sort of across the board. And it is like, it's never designed around this idea that we are sort of like complex people with complex lives and complex, you know, streams of money coming in. Yeah. 
So making it simpler, I think, is what you're saying too. Uh, simpler to administer. And then oftentimes you get into the discussion about, well, if you made it simpler, there's going to be some times in which you're paying too much or paying too little, but it does it all even out in the end. Probably does, right? So how, how can you make that work? Uh, interesting discussion. Yeah, whether it's rural or non-rural. Right. <laughs> yes, but I think one of the reasons that this is sort of particularly acute here is because it's sort of a long-standing Vermont tradition to have because there is sort of no one thing that will work for most people, we are patching it together because resources mm -hmm. um, tend to be spread thinner. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that joke about calling a Vermonter with only three jobs lazy, I, I always come back to that joke when I think of my working life because in some ways it's not funny. No, but, I don't think it's even a little bit funny. But it... it symbolizes for me how deeply embedded in our culture this um, idea of patching it together and making it work um, and and uh, that that kind of bailing twine and duct tape ethos we even do it with we, we don't just do it with our farm tractors we we do it with our with our financial lives too um, which is a whole host of problems in of itself um, but I, like I said, I think it speaks to something that has been such a necessity for so long. It's become a tradition and, and even one that we try to, to joke about. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I've had times where I've had three jobs as well, um, and including the legislature and part of that is from my own doing. And I think a lot of us, um, and, uh, I, I know this person who is in a position to have more responsibility working at her employer and chose not to because she wanted to have a different balance in her life. So it was a decision she made. Um, and for, for me, that was, it's also been decisions. I mean, I've had four different careers and I'm not alone. I've talked to a couple of other people who've had the same type of thing um, because it was, all right, I want to do something different now where I've always admired the people that could know that they were going to do the same thing for 35 years and retire. Um, and that the, in Vermont, there seems to be a, that tradition of, well, let me change something up a little bit. Uh, so, and, and it's not, so some of it's of necessity, some of it's by choice. Uh, would you agree with that? Uh, that deep tradition I was talking about, um, I think it's more about necessity. Mm. I think you're right. I think there are people, um, who are making choices about work-life balance, but particularly that tradition yeah. and, and, and that kind of longstanding tradition, I think was more about necessity than, hmm. than choice because there weren't always places where you could get a job for full time job right? yeah, yeah. and have a pension at the end of it, you know? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. What, what's your thought, Emily? Um, you know, I think there's by necessity. And then I think that, for a lot of people, what looks like choice is also sort of part of necessity. Like, how long are you going to just wait tables um, given all of the other ways that that impacts your life? And maybe you're going to sort of split up waiting tables with working part-time at the health department. Um, but you can't actually work full-time at the health department because you need to pick up your kids from school at 3 o'clock. And that's not a lifestyle choice. It's that there's actually no after-school care at your school because of you know, rural Vermont schools can't provide all services at this particular point or aren't providing all services. And so 
it looks like a choice to sort of pivot from one to the other, but it's the only choice that's sort of available to make life actually workable for folks um, while they enter different phases of their life. And so yeah, false when we talk about, you know, when we talk about rural vitality, we talk about sort of people coming together in those community centers. We talk about um, opportunities being available, but we also, you know, keep on coming back to this sort of mythic sense of affordability, mm -hmm. um, which means whatever is sort of politically useful to whichever candidate's talking about at that particular moment, you know, mm -hmm. I think we all mean something different by it. Um, for me, affordability means actually people actually like make wages that allow them to afford things. And I think say for the governor, it means that things cost enough that no business needs to pay a living wage, um, cost little enough that no business needs to pay a living wage. And so I, hmm. um, and that's sort of two maybe policy extremes there, but when people, this sort of, this sense of patching it together and making it work is, I guess I wonder what sort of the opportunity on the other side of it is that would really make Vermont a place where people could maybe patch it together, but patch it together in a way that they could still show up at town meeting. Mm -hmm. um, what, where, where's the boundary line and what do we really need to do to shift towards more vibrant communities mm -hmm. in like economically? Yeah, so if you look at those. If Save us, would be, yeah. Emily broke up there. I'm so sorry. Oh, what I said was if entrepreneurship was going to save us all, we would be saved now. Like yeah. we have Amazon. We're still all struggling, right? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because you look at this number of, uh, if you look at the businesses that are in existence in the state of Vermont and how big they are, you know, 95% of them have fewer than 50 employees. Yeah. So it's just, it is skews towards the smaller business. And the one that has the greatest concentration are those with four or fewer employees. Um, so it's, we, we are a state of small businesses. Um, and so how do they uh, survive in rural parts of the, uh, of the state? Um, and how do you make that happen? And there are those that are doing gangbuster business, uh, depending on what industry they're in and rural parts of the state. Um, I met a couple in Enosburg and they were dairy farmers and they opened up a, a general store, uh, a store because they, they really wanted to do that. And the, the work on the farm was getting really hard um, for them physically. So they've operated this general store um, in Enosburg and it's been very successful for them. So they pivoted and they made that move. Um, so there are other folks, another person there was working at Global Foundries and from Enosburg driving down to Burlington. Um, or Essex Junction every day. So that's a haul. Um, so he was making it work. So there is there are opportunities in, in rural parts of the state for sure, either for small business owners or for people that are looking for a full-time job. Um, you know, still in the state of Vermont, if you think about it, there's, when I last checked, there's 28,000 job openings in the state. Um, I can't tell you how many of them are full-time or part-time, um, but uh, of of those job openings, uh, there aren't enough people that are applying for the for the work. Um, so there, you know, I think there are those opportunities. We still do have that affordability crisis, which is the price of housing, price of childcare, price of gas right now, home heating fuel, um, and and can people actually save money and put it in the bank for their retirement? 
for education, for the rainy day, for the vacation they want to have at some point in time, uh, for buying a new house. And so that becomes really a question of, are they earning enough money? To your point, Emily, yes, it is a matter of earnings. Um, it's not just the cost, but I mean, housing costs are out of control right now. Um, that's a whole different subject, but um, yeah. Uh, so I, I think there still are opportunities. If we talk about broadband and what kind of things, if extending broadband to the rural communities, does that help them be more relevant, more economically sustainable? I think the answer is yes, um, because then you can have, you can even have remote work uh, in the in a smallest town, not reliant on uh, foot traffic coming through uh, for that. So there, there are increasing opportunities, I believe, to be um, economically successful in rural communities. The question that you brought up is the fabric of the community. How do you get those people back together and create that sense of community? Um, and that's gotta be driven from the people in that community. How do we get together? Um, uh, I, I honestly believe that. Mm -hmm. So we have just a few minutes um, before we need to wrap this week's episode. So Charlie, another question I've been asking every candidate so far that has come on the show is, you know, is there one policy that you would like to enact that you believe would make Vermont work better for everybody? Just one. One. It's the worst question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, there have been so many policies either uh, voting on or, or promoting. Um, yeah, that is that is a tough question to ask um, or to answer. Can I say something while you think? Is that helpful? Yeah. I was um, going into the Putney Co-op the other day. Um, and a, I think middle school, maybe high school student was standing outside with a microphone and her dad sort of off on the edge um, and asked everyone if they could, you know, was sort of asking everyone who went in if they, she could ask them one question. And I said, sure, all sort of spunky and excited to talk to this student. And she said that exact question, what is one policy that you would enact in, or like had no idea as a legislator, it was asking everyone, what's one policy you can enact that would like have the most change in the world. And I just like full on panicked. <laughs> poor student. And I was like, I don't know, I'll think about it in the store and come back out. But it was just like everyone else just like had a super easy time. Like she'd ask them the question, they'd answer, they'd carry on. And I was like, I can't, that's the world's too complicated for that answer. So anyway, Charlie, what's your one policy? Yeah, what's the one silver bullet? Well, you know, when I when I started writing- I didn't for, say it had to be a silver bullet. <laughs> thank you, yeah, yeah. Uh, one policy. Um, you know, when I, when I started to run for lieutenant governor, it was all about workforce development and, and it quickly, quickly became a conversation about housing. Um, and so if, if I was able to affect one policy, it would be about long-term affordability of housing. Mm -hmm. um, we have some things in place with shared equity arrangements. I would like to see more arrangements such as that to keep housing permanently affordable for the residents. Um, and um, it not necessarily requires new law because the law already exists to allow for it. Um, but if I was able to allocate some additional funds to make that possible, uh, because it does require funds to um, maintain something as permanently affordable, that would be it. 
Um, so I, because uh, that it comes down to are, are you, do you have a place that is a quality place to live where you're comfortable and you can afford it? Uh, and we need more of that housing availability for Vermonters in order to move forward. Thank you, Charlie. Um, Charlie, if folks want to find out more about you or your campaign, where can they go? Ah, they go to charlieforvermont.com. Yeah. <laughs> See, yeah. aren't you glad I made you not sit in front of your sign? <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, so no, this is my website. It has links to different uh, social media as well, but um, love for to, to engage with people about what's on their minds. Uh, really appreciate the opportunity to be with you today, Olga and Emily. It's, uh, it's great to be uh, in Brattleboro virtually. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. And as always, Emily, where can people find more information about you? Folks can go to emilykornheiser.org where you can find links to all the socials and my email address and ways to get in touch. Um, and I would also like to put in a plug, we're doing events every two weeks on The Common. Um, it's a collaboration between a bunch of different organizations, but every other Wednesday until the primary, we're having um, some pretty robust Meet the Candidate events. We're inviting all the statewide candidates down as well as all of the countywide candidates. Um, for some robust conversations, some debates. This next event is going to be a game of political jeopardy, which I'm super duper excited about. Um, so that's a week from today, um, the 29th, um, on the com Brattleboro Common from 5 to 7. Um, and so folks can find that um, on by finding me on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or um, Front Porch Forum or posting about it everywhere. But it should be a really fun event if folks want to turn out for it. Wonderful. Great. Thank you. And as always, you can find the Montpelier Happy Hour at 2 p.m. on WBEW every Friday at 107.7 LP Brattleboro. You can also find us on BCTV and at Emily's YouTube channel, at our Captivate page, and our Facebook page. All of those are the Montpelier Happy Hour. So hope to see everyone next week, and let's toast before we go to rural vitality. Cheers. <laughs>